After the uh, Reformation break, where we uh, took a look at four characters that were influential in the Reformation, I, and if you weren't here for those, I hope you go back and listen to them. Uh, lesson on uh, Tertullian, an early Latin father, then a lesson on Chrysostom, an early, an early um, a Greek father, then a lesson on Augustine, and then uh, Bernard of Clairvaux uh, last week. If you haven't heard, listen to them. I encourage you to do that. But today we return to our foundation series. As you remember, we were covering foundations of the Christian faith. Things that are important. We looked at the doctrine of God. We looked at the doctrine of man. Now we are in the middle of looking at the, or the tail end of looking at the doctrine of the word. And there is very few things that are more foundational than the doctrine of the word of God. And Lord willing, we'll finish it today. And the next Lord's Day, we'll start with the doctrine of soteriology which is the doctrine of salvation, and we're going to start with, uh, um, we're going to be ten separate subjects, it may not be ten lessons, maybe maybe less, but be ten separate subjects in the category of doctrine of salvation, and then we'll be done with our series on uh, um, foundations. Today, we're considering the canon of the scriptures and the authority of the scriptures. Um, The canon... It's just another way to say the books that, are, that should be in the Bible. And there are 66 of them, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. And in the Bible Presbyterian Church, in order to be a pastor, you have to go through two fairly um, intensive and expensive, not with an A, not with an E, no, large um, tests, oral tests. And in my licensure, which is the first one, I was asked, one of the questions was to name the minor prophets in chronological order with a ruling foreign power. I was able to do that, no issue. And then another question was, can you list the minor prophets in order, in canonical order, so in the order that's in the Bible? That was the most difficult question, at least for me to answer at the time, because I was so focused on other things that uh, I didn't pay attention to the order that they show up in the Bible. So when we talk about the canon, we're talking about that order, we're talking about the books that should be in the Bible uh, for us. And uh, we're going to take a look at the Old Testament canon, what books should be in the Old Testament, and what books should be in the New Testament. Then we're going to take a look at the evidences for the authority of the Scriptures uh, as an encouragement for a believer. None of the things I'm going to say about the evidences for the uh, for the um, the authority of, and the, the veracity of the scriptures will actually likely influence a non-believer. But they're a great, great um, encouragement for a, a believer. Any questions about what I've said so far? All right, so let's... I'm here. <laughs> yes. So that first test for me was 10 hours long of oral tests, and then uh, subsequently I had another five-hour forward nation uh, and that's not untypical, which is a double number. Never should say that's typical. All right, Old Testament canon. Uh, can you think what the Bible says about the Old Testament? What, can you think of what the New Testament or even Jesus says about the Old Testament that would help us figure out what books are, are, should be part of the Old Testament? Well, passages such as this one. In Luke 24, verse 44, Jesus is speaking and says, These are my words that I spoke to you 
while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And you say, okay, so at face value here, we see Jesus saying that the, in the law of Moses, so let's say the first five books of all, the law, then the prophets, so you have the 12 minor prophets, you have the four major prophets, you have the book of Lamentations, and then the book of Psalms, but that doesn't say anything about the rest of the Old Testament. Well, the three categories he speaks are very important for us to keep in mind because in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible is actually divided into three portions, differently than, than how we divide our Old Testament. And the three portions are the law, the prophets, and the writings. Those three categories encompass all the books that we have in our Old Testament. And you see, so you see in this verse that Jesus talks about the law, he talks about the prophets, but he's missing what? The writings. Well, Psalms is the largest book of the section that in the Hebrew Bible is called the writings. So by referring to the largest book in that section, Jesus is saying, he's affirming the whole thing. So Jesus says, well, the, 20, the, the books that are in the Hebrew Bible all speak of me. And by using those categories, he put a stamp of approval in the canon, on the canon that was available at his time, to the, in the stamp of approval on the list of books that were available, that recognized by the Hebrew community, by the Jewish people, as being the Word of God. And they so happen to be the exact same 37 books that we have in our Old Testament today. We also see Jesus saying this in, this, uh, in Luke eleven fifty one. He says, From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And he, later on in the book of Matthew, he says it again in Matthew 23, while declaring woes upon the Pharisees, he says, So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on, the, on earth, from the blood of, of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Now you say, how is it relevant? Well, what book is Abel in? Genesis. Now the second name is a little more challenging. Zechariah is in our second chronicles. He's, he, he's, he, he dies there. Well, Genesis is the first book of the Hebrew Bible, just like ours. But in the Hebrew Bible, the last book is Second Chronicles. So by citing Genesis and Second Chronicles, and it says everything in between is your fault, Jesus is again putting his stamp of approval on the list of books considered by the Jewish people as being the Word of God in the order they had, in the content they had. So Jesus himself says that the books we have in our Bible, the, the, the 39 books that we have in our Old Testament, are the books that we should have. No more, no less than those 39 books. Are you with me? Any questions about what I've said so far? Right, the, the, the one difference we're going to find between our Bible and the Hebrew Bible that was available in the first century is that they actually separated everything into 22 books. Not 39 like we have, but 22. And those 22 included everything that we have in our 39. Now, can you think of ways in which 39 can become 22? So the first and seconds jammed together, all right? But that's not enough. Minor prophets all together, yes, but still not enough. 
Psalms are already one book. So Nehemiah and Ezra is viewed as one, and Lamentation and Jeremiah is also viewed as one book. All 39 books of the Old Testament, except for Esther, are quoted or alluded in our New Testament. So again, the Holy Spirit putting his stamp of approval on those books there in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Esther was the, the one that had the hardest time being recognized as part of the canon. And most scholars think that's because God is never directly mentioned in the book of Esther. I don't know if you ever noticed that. If you read it, you see God's providence all over. But you don't, the name of God is not mentioned in direct speech, in indirect speech, or any other way in the book of Esther. Any questions about what, I just, uh, what I've said? Scott? Did they use scrolls back then? And, and if they did, how did they determine the order of the scrolls? They did not use scrolls. They used like animal, all the animal hides. Scrolls would be too tiny to write on. No, just, he, he, they did use scrolls, yes. And they were... Um, Nobody left at my bad joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Only, only it works for a Brazilian. Uh, they're kept separately. Some of them were combined, as we're going to see in a moment. But uh, and that, not everything was written on scrolls either. There, the uh, uh, pottery was used, stones were used, and so on. So how did they determine the order of the scrolls, the stories? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, there's a a, a a sequence of history, so that's easy to see. And then the three categories that they just let's put like books together, right? But the Jewish mind thought a little different. For example, Daniel in the Jewish Bible is not a prophet; it's a history book, it's a writing. The same with Psalms. So, but that's kind of trying to put like books together. Eventually, that's what gave the order. So, yeah. Uh, any other questions about what I've said so far? Andrew. As far as the Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, they all agree on at least those 39 books. That's correct. Yes. All right, so what I want to do now is now, so we saw that, that our Lord Jesus himself believed that the Jewish list of books that are as a recognized as the Word of God in the first century was what his church should use. And we see that the apostles agree with that by quoting from those books. What I want to see now is move outside of the Bible and look at historical evidence that the church itself also adopted the same list of books. And the word adopt is important because adopt is different than decide. We tend to think that somehow a group of people got together and voted on which books would be in the Bible. and That's not the case. The, the different councils and so on adopted what was in existence in the church already. Do you, do you understand? Do you see the difference? Might be subtle, but it's an important uh, difference here. Uh, to tell the truth, the first time that a group of men got together to vote on what books should be in the Bible and what not should be in the Bible took place in 1546. There's a little meeting that we like to refer as the Council of Trent. So to that point, there had not been a council that decided that we're going to vote and what the majority of truth is, is going to be what is in the canon. All right? So 
We're going to throw a bunch of names. Hopefully some stick. And uh, you might remember some of them. I'm going to start with the, with the council. Uh, early on, in, so in the first century still, a bunch of guys uh, got together in this place in Jamia. It was a Jewish synod. And it was held to, dis- to discuss, among other things, what books have been generally accepted in, in the Jewish community. And they recognized, they, they, they recognized that the books that we've been mentioning, the books that we have in our Bible today, were the books that had been generally accepted in the Jewish faith as the, um, as the Word of God. They, dis- they spent some more time discussing on Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Esther. We were debated for, by several reasons, but we're all upheld, all uh, accepted as canonical. And it's also important that other books, which are in the Apocrypha, and I'll have a little, I'll explain what that is in a moment, were rejected. So even though they didn't vote to decide which ones are in the Bible, they did acknowledge that some of them, some of these books have never been accepted in the Jewish faith as part of the Bible. And, and that becomes important in a, mo- in a moment. Um, and the books that they were, they were acknowledged were already accepted by the Jews, while those they refused were never included in the, first, in the canon in the first place. Now, another important name is Philo. See there, his uh, 25 BC is uh, birth date. He was a, a, Jew, uh, a Greek Jew in Alexandria, a very learned man. Uh, he lived around the time of our, our Lord, and he was a Greek-speaking Jew. So he did not read from the Hebrew Old Testament. He read from a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that has become known to us as the Septuagint. Sometimes you might be reading a Bible and has a footnote, and in the footnote it has LXX, which is the Roman numeral 70, and is a reference to the Septuagint. You can Google why it's called that. That's not important for what we're saying here, but that became the accepted translation for Hebrews in the diaspora, the Hebrews outside of of uh, Palestine. Now, the Septuagint, because of scroll cost, Scott, included the Apocrypha, these extra books, in, in it so that they could have economy of scales. But Philo, who was the leading Jew of the time, said, even though they are kind of packaged together, they are not part of the Bible. And it was important that that was said, and that was agreed upon by all around him. You've ever heard of Josephus? Uh, you have heard of Jesus, you say. First century Jew uh, who probably came around right after Jesus' death. He wrote many things in Greek, but in his letter against Apion, uh, who, somebody he didn't like, he lists the books that we have today in the Old Testament as being the books that have always been accepted by the Jewish by the people of God as the word of God. So you can see a pattern developing, right? That very early on, the books that we have in our Old Testament have been the books that have always been accepted by the church as those that were the word of God. Continue that pattern. There's this uh, bishop, Mylita, from Sardis. You know, we know Sardis from the book of Revelation. It's one of the seven letters. That in 170 AD came across a list saying these are the books that, we, that the church has been accepted, the Jewish church has accepted, and so on. It's the same as we have today. Origen, the greatest Bible scholar, perhaps, of the Greek fathers, lists the same books as we have today. And he doesn't list saying, hey, I decided this. He says, this is what the church has always recognized as being the word of God. 
Uh, Athanasius, the same, the same pattern. Uh, and then Jerome and Augustine. But Jerome, which is probably the greatest Bible scholar of the Latin world, um, can't remember which one of us doing the Reformation uh, series, uh, taught that the church was often divided between Latin-speaking church and Greek-speaking church. And Augustine, now Augustine Jerome, even though he lived in the East, was the greatest Bible scholar in the Latin world. He also said that the, the, what we have today is what the church has accepted uh, throughout the ages there, to the point that he refused to translate extra books and to associate them with the Bible till he was threatened with uh, removal of funds and said, oh, okay. So he translated a couple of them. And though it would take him months to translate books that he considered to be part of the Bible, he translated two of these books each and a half a day because he said, this is not the word of God. I don't have to be as careful with it. Whatever comes out is fine. And those became actually the official translation in the Roman Catholic Church later on of those uh, books. We'll get there in a moment. And uh, it's interesting that, uh, you know, remember the Hebrew Bible, the same 39 books that we have were in the first century Hebrew Bible, but they divided in 22. And Jerome even said, you know, and they do that because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so and so on. So that, I'm only saying that, this is not that important, but to say that in Jerome's mind, they'll settle. That's the books that God has given to the church. And it was just settled in his mind. He said that because that was the opinion of the church around him. Any, any questions about what I've said about the Old Testament canon? All right. Move to New Testament then. How many books in the New Testament? Exactly. 27 in the New Testament, right? 66 total, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Uh, the, the New Testament canon is uh, distinguished by the authority of the apostles. Well, the New Testament writings were either written by apostles or, or by apostolic men. And because the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, death and resurrection, and because of the promise made to them by Jesus, remember Jesus says, Thy Spirit's going to come and it's going to lead you into all truth, um, their writings are authoritative and thus canonical. Now, why do you think there was a need for a, a list of books? Why was it important for the church to know what books were part of the Bible? Levi? Reading the real stuff, yes. What else? What is very common in the first three centuries of the Christian era? Hmm? So heresies is another reason to know which books are the books. But there's something else going on all the way through to at least through 315 A.D. Persecutions. So it's very important to know which books you're going to die for and which books you're not. Right? Which books you're going to burn and which books you are not. So there's a need for that. Remember that there's no need for a, a list while the apostles are around because you just go ask them and say, oh, yep, these are it. But once they passed, uh, after, no, once they passed away, then there was a need to figure out, to acknowledge which books are part of uh, are the Word of God. Now, some of, of by the, shortly after the Gospel of John was written, the four Gospels were already gathered together and being circulated in the church as the Word of God. The same with the epistles of Paul. Heresy also uh, was another driving force for the church to recognize which books should be in the New Testament. 
as early as the second century, so about AD 140. John is dead for about 40 years. Uh, heresy is already uh, very prevalent in the church, and have this guy Marcion coming and saying several things, saying that Jesus did not come in the flesh. And so he said, okay, and let me give you the list of books that should be accepted uh, by you, and only Luke, because Luke is a Gentile. I don't like Jews, so Luke is okay. Paul is okay, but not the pastoral epistles. And uh, in Luke, we're going to remove the birth story, the, 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 the genealogy, because only people... Real people have that, and Jesus wasn't the real person. He didn't have a body, so we don't need those. And in debating with Marcion, then the church had to figure out, well, is what he's saying true or not? So heresies uh, helped the church figuring out what books were in the Bible. And then persecutions, as I said, you know, you need to know which book you're going to die for. You don't want to die for any book, um, even good books, only for the, the real stuff. Uh, any questions before we continue? Yes, Carol. Can you just ask the question about the word itself, testament? Sure. Um, when, is that an English word? It's an English word based on a Latin word. Um, it's, um, yes, it's an English word based on a Latin word, to answer your question, yes. Well, they didn't call either, right? This is a later edition of, of the Word Testament. Yes, yes, and it's common in the West, right? In the uh, in the East, where if you if you're in the Greek Orthodox Church, they're going to call they will use the Greek word for covenant in, in there, and that's more consistent, I think, because Paul in Second Corinthians says that we're ministers of the new covenant and talks about the Word of God. So it's more consistent that way, but it's, it's not worth the time to try to change it. Same way it's not worth the time trying to change where the verses go. You know, sometimes verses and chapters don't make sense of the division, but after 2,000 or 500 years of history that way, just leave it at that. Any other questions? All right, so we saw in the past that the New Testament itself, authors thought that other New Testament writers were inspired and should be part of the Bible. For example, Paul quotes... In Second in First Timothy five, Paul quotes Deuteronomy and Luke, and says the scriptures say, and refer to those two things. Uh, Peter calls the Paul the writings of Paul scripture as well. But it, uh, we have to move outside of the New Testament to actually have historical evidence that the church itself held to those books. And you can go as far as back as Irenaeus in the first second century, AD one hundred and thirty. So we're talking about. 30 years after John died thereabouts, he was a bishop of Lyon and in Gaul, and he, in, his write, his, in his writings he says that the church acknowledges the same books that we have in our uh, New Testament today. Uh, a document called the Muratorian Canon from the 2nd century is the result of that fight against Marcion, where it's a list of the books that we have today in our New Testament. Justin Martyr... <coughs> Again, 2nd century, AD 150, says that uh, the memoirs of the apostles were read in Christian gatherings together with the writings of the prophets. So the writings of the apostles and the writings of the prophets had the same standard, stand in the church. By the way, his name was Justin. It wasn't like his parents named him Justin Martyr, knowing ahead of time how he was going to die. He became Justin Martyr after he died, you know, and martyred them. 
Uh, Origen, so now in the third century, gives us a list of, of, of the books as we have them today. Um, Eusebius in the fourth century, so the 300s, does the same thing. He really did not like Revelation. Eusebius did not like Revelation because he really, really, really didn't like the idea of a millennium, a physical millennial kingdom. But the evidence that, the, that Revelation was the word of God was so overwhelming that he couldn't in good conscience say that it wasn't part of the Bible. But he would say, don't read it, just read other books in the Bible. It is part of the Bible, but read other books instead. Don't want to be bothered by the scriptures, right? Uh, again, Athanasius does the same thing now in the 4th century. He lists the same books as we have. Jerome and Augustine do the same thing. And then um, even council in North Africa in 393 list the, whole, the 27 books that we have uh, today, the Council of Hippo. Any questions? Okay, Chris, based on our Reformation Month series, what famous church father ministered in Hippo? Augustine, yes. All right. All right, so the canon of the Bible established is the same 66 books that we have today. Uh, it just for ease of talk, we talk about the Protestant canon and Roman Catholic canon and the Eastern Orthodox canon. But really, there's only one true canon, and that's what we have in our Bibles today. Uh, the uh, the largest list of books that are considered the Word of God is in the Eastern Orthodox Church. Their Bibles are really thick. the The shortest list is the Protestant list, uh, and uh, in, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the largest canon of all the different groups is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church there. Um, so I'm going to move on from the canon a little bit, uh, talk uh, about a related issue, and that's the Apocrypha, because our tradition is a Western tradition, a Latin tradition, and the Roman Catholic Church has a bigger list of books. And why is it that we don't have those in our Bible. Those are called the Apocrypha. That term is only used for those books that are in the Roman Catholic Church Bible, but it's not in our Bible. So, are you with me? So it's a very technical, limited uh, uh, term used there. This is what our confession says. The books commonly called the Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are not part of the canon of the Scripture, and therefore are, not, uh, are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So our confession doesn't say don't read them and so on, but it does say don't read them as the word of God. There, there, some of them are very good, book, uh, very good, like Ecclesiasticus and First Maccabees. But read it as good human writing, not like the word of God. This is how Webster defines the word apocrypha. Uh, oh, sorry, not Webster. A.A. Um, A. Hodge. The word apocrypha, anything hidden, has been applied to certain ancient writings whose authorship is not manifest and for which unfounded claims have been set up for a place in the canon. Those unfounded um, claims are um, by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, these are the books. Uh, Tobit. So that if you have a Roman Catholic Bible, the book of Tobit would be in it. Uh, wisdom, otherwise also called 
uh, oh, it was just a wisdom of Ben Sirach. Then uh, Judith, there's another book in the, there, Ecclesiasticus, which is very similar to Proverbs. Baruch, now remember who Baruch is in the actual Bible? It's kind of like Jeremiah's secretary. Um, first and second Maccabees. There's also a third and fourth Maccabees, but those are not apocryphal, means that they're not included in the Roman Catholic canon. And then there are additions. There's three additions. There's an addition, uh, there's the history of Susanna added to the book of Daniel in which she's a heron in which she defeats the Assyrian army that had taken Daniel and Israel captive. Do you see a problem with that, what I just said? What is the problem? Yeah, the Assyrians did not take Israel captive. The Babylonians did. So you find that kind of stuff throughout these, these books that don't match actual history. They also add the song of the three children. That's supposedly a song that um, uh, the three friends of Daniel sang in the furnace while they're burning. And then they add the history of Bell and the dragon. It's a, it's a, to the book of Daniel, it's a sleuth story where uh, they would offer these things to uh, Bell, which was not actually the, the god of the Babylonians, but, and then the things that consumed, and Daniel said that can't be because it's not a real god. And Daniel comes and spreads flour in the, in the, in the temple. And the next day they come back and they see footprints leading from the altar to a wall. And they find a secret passage on the wall where the, the, the bell uh, priest would come and uh, at night would take the offering. And so the secret passage. And then he slew all the, the priests of Bell. Not quite, you know the character or the, 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 the kind of stuff we read in the rest of the book of Daniel. So, but these are the additions that are in the Roman Catholic Bible, but they're not in the Protestant Bible. Any questions so far about what I've said? Sonia? Uh, Garbage. No, they're not called that. They're, um, <laughs> they're not called that. The, uh, the, we don't have necessarily a name for them. Some of them are going to be pseudepigraphal, meaning written under somebody else's name. Uh, you have also the, uh, the Gnostic Gospels. So there's different combinations, but there, as far as I'm aware, there's no overarching title for the Eastern Orthodox editions. They include these as well. Jerry. I've always been curious why the other apostles never wrote anything, or is there evidence that they did? Well, there's evidence that Paul wrote at least two more letters to the Corinthians, right? Uh, uh, outside of the first and second Corinthians that we have in the Bible. But the, 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 what I'm saying about the canon is that it really doesn't matter if they unearthed today a letter and had, you know, um, James is the apostle's signature and is verified beyond all. It, uh, doubt that it was actually written by James the Apostle still will not be part of the Bible because it hasn't been part of the Bible. Nothing else is going to be added, no matter what. And why? The Holy Spirit chose to only reveal, to inspire some men to, to write. Right? All right. Uh, some, some evidence why the... the, uh, the oops, sorry. I'm one... We're going to stay here for a second. Um, why is it that we don't include these seven things, seven additions 
in our Bible. More than seven, but... Um, they, never, they, they were never part of the Hebrew scriptures. As a matter of fact, the Jews themselves rejected these in the first century. Christ or the apostles do not quote from them uh, at all. Uh, they do quote from other non-canonical writings, but they don't quote from these. If you look at the book of Jude, uh, Jude quotes from the, the, uh, the testimony of the Twelve and so on, which are non-canonical books. Paul quotes from from Greek philosophers and so on, but he does not, nowhere are these books quoted or referred to. The early church fathers never embraced these books. Even Roman Catholic Church did not accept them till the 16th century. It was not part of the Roman Catholic canon till the Council of Trent, which started in 1546. In, in, internal evidence disproves any claim of canon, canonicity. None of them claim to be inspired. As a matter of fact, Ecclesiasticus claims not to be inspired, <laughs> you know, so, uh, which is not true of any of the canonical books. And then there's moral content. For example, in the, the story of Susanna, uh, she actually prostitutes herself in order to get victory over the general. So it is inconsistent with the moral teaching of the rest of the scriptures. All right. Now, this is the part that's going to be encouraging for a believer, but it's not really the kind of things that might necessarily change the mind of an unbeliever, but you should, be, you should know for an apologetic purpose so that you at least can answer some questions. You know, to be considered to have come from God, a book must meet certain requirements. It must be transmitted to us accurately. It must be correct when dealing with history. and It must not have any scientific absurdities. Those are three standards that a book, minimal standards that a book needs to, to meet for us to even think about that as the Word of God. So think with me about the transmission of the Bible. Now the text of the Bible has been transmitted very accurately. There is more evidence for the reliability of the text of the New Testament than for any ten pieces of classical literature put together. So pick the top ten pieces of classical literature, Homer's Iliad, Homer's Odyssey, whatever, Greek plays, put them together, there's more evidence for the New Testament than for all of them put together. There's more evidence for the text that we have today than all put together. So what we have today is what was originally written. And God promises that, the preservation of His Word in the Bible. So since the Bible says that, we should expect to see that in history. And guess what? We see that in history. There's more textual evidence for the New Testament than... so. Say, okay, well, ancient literature, it's old, it's difficult, and so on. But there's, think, listen to this, there's more textual evidence for the text of the New Testament than for thir- the 37 plays that Shakespeare wrote. We're more sure about the text of the New Testament than we are about the text of Shakespeare's play, plays. Why is that important? When did Shakespeare write? After a major event in world history? Yes, but there's even a more major event after the printing press. So here we have the New Testament being copied by hand, and Shakespeare, Shakespeare is being printed, so you have multiple copies that are identical, supposedly, and yet we are more certain of the text, and this is secular or biblical scholars agree on this, we're more certain about the text of the New Testament 
than the text of Shakespeare, Shakespeare's plays. Now, there are, so there are gaps in Shakespeare's plays, and there is some gap, some lacuna in the New Testament, but not nothing compared to the text of Shakespeare. Also, the, the, the Bible is historically accurate. The history recording the Bible is, is, there's no contradictions. It matches everything that we've seen. It's interesting that for, you, you read uh, criticisms of the Bible, and they say, oh, look, this name is only found in the Bible, nowhere. So the Bible must have made up. This cannot be a real story. The, David was one of those names. You, you, didn't, you had no historical reference for anybody named David for centuries, and liberals would say, see, that's a made-up story, till the, 19th, the 20th century, the 1900s, when um, in the dig in Jerusalem, by accident, they found inscriptions talking about that David, who was king, who brought the ark to Jerusalem, who just everything the Bible says, or everything they found in it was the Bible had already uh, said. Of course, you know, the disapproval of the criticism never gets the same printing time as, or uh, news time as the criticism itself. To the 1940s, well, even to the 70s, there's great criticism to the against the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, because of the Hittites. I don't know if you remember that, but Hittites, uh, Abraham buys the plot to bury Sarah from the Hittites, and said, that's not found, and the Bible portrays them as a major world power, and there's no record of them anywhere, so it must be not true, because if there was such a world power, we'd find evidence of the Hittites everywhere, and we don't find them anywhere until 1970s. They were digging in Ebla, and they found countless tablets of this empire called the Hittites that paralleled the Roman Empire in size, and they included every day, like bill of laden, bill of sales, that included property being bought by a man by the name of Abraham, whose wife was Sarah. In, in cuneiform language. So, um, anytime the Bible has been disputed, eventually it's been vindicated as well. Now, historians use the book of Acts as a completely accurate record of Roman, Roman history. There's a, a gentleman, Sir William Ramsey. When you have the word sir in front of you, you know you should pay attention, right? Sir William, well, Elton John kind of throws that idea out of that, of that but <laughs> William Ramsey was an archaeologist, an atheist archaeologist that set out to disprove the book of Acts by following it. His goal was to show how inaccurate, therefore not the word of God, the book of Acts was. So he said, I'm going to follow the roots, I'm going to, I'm going to try to go to the cities that are there. And as he did that, he actually was converted to Christianity because he found that everything was absolutely accurate, including the winds that caused Paul to uh, shipwreck and the way the direction of the winds and where the islands were and so on, it was was identical to what was in the book of Acts. And the Bible also does not include any scientific absurdities. Although the Bible is not written as a scientific book, it does not contain scientific inaccuracies. Do Do you understand this statement? The Bible is not written as a science book, but it uses popular language. For example, it talks about things that fly and includes the birds and the bats. Well, we know scientifically a bat's not a bird. But guess what it does? It flies. The whales are included with the creatures of the sea together with the fish. But we know whales are not fish. But guess where they live? 
in the sea. So use this popular language to talk about these things. But whatever it says, scientifically, it's true. The book of Job already said that the earth was round long before scientists ever found that out. The book of Job said the Pleiades are bound together by its own power long before astronomers figured out that the Pleiades is one of the few constellations that, whose stars are actually kept together by its, their own gravity towards one another. Most of the constellations you look up and they look like they're close and they're together, but each star is so far from one another they have no bearing on one another. But the Pleiades is different. They're actually kept together by their gravi- gravitational pull. And the Bible is also unique. The Bible is not a great book among other great books. The Bible is the greatest book. No, it's, it's unique. It's different than any other book. And the Bible is unique in its continuity. It, the Bible is written in a period of 1,500 years. Well, you know, we, we, we have it bound together, so it feels like it's all together. But it was written in a period of 1,500 years, written over 40 generations, written by more than 40 authors in every different walks of life. Paul's a rabbi. Moses is a political and religious leader. Peter's a fisherman. Amos is a shepherd. Joshua is a military general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Daniel is a prime minister. Luke a doctor. Solomon a king. Matthew a text collector. It was written in different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah in the dungeon. John at Patmos. Written in different circumstances. Written in three different continents. Asia, Europe, and Africa. Written in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And despite all these differences, the Bible presents a a continuity that no other book does. And remember that it's not like the authors had the rest of the books with them necessarily. So when, when uh, you know, uh, Jeremiah is writing his books, he doesn't necessarily have everything that was written before with him. And yet it matches and flows exactly. And you can see that history of redemption through all these books. And the Bible is also unique in its circulation. The Bible has been read, read by more people and published in more language than any other book. The Bible has sold more copies than any other book. Just in England, which is a small, you know, and I'm not talking Great Britain, but in England... 32,876 copies have to be printed every day in order to keep up with demand. Now, some of that is exported and so on, but that's, that's an amazing amount of daily production there. And the Bible is unique in its translation. The Bible is one of the first major books translated in 250 B.C., the Old Testament, uh, parts of the Old Testament there. The whole Bible has been translated into more than 240 different languages and dialects. No other book. Has ever been that, that has not been done to any other book. And the Bible is unique in its survival. Uh, through, through survival through time, survival through persecution, survival through criticism. Have you ever heard of the French philosopher Voltaire? One of the, the, kind of, one of the minds of the French Revolution. He said that the Bible and Christianity would be disproven and done with before his lifetime. Today, the French Bible Society resides at Voltaire's former home. Now, God likes irony in that way. And the Bible is unique in its teaching. Nor the book presents prophecies so accurately, accurate in their fulfillment. Nor the books present historic events in such accurate fashion. Nor the book is so truthful about the people it includes. You notice that the Bible, outside of Jesus Christ, all its heroes are very flawed. People just like us. That's not how usually 
people write, you know, books, at least historically has not been that case. The Bible presents people as they are, just like we are as well. So the Bible, there's great evidence for the Bible as the Word of God. And that's helpful for us who believe in the Bible. But ultimately, faith in the veracity of the Scriptures comes only through the work of the Holy Spirit as a result of the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I wish I had more time to talk and, and, and answer questions. I'm happy to talk to you guys uh, after we're done or at lunchtime. But well, we're going to end now in prayer. Father, thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you've given us a sure word that uh, we can be con- completely convinced that what we have in our Bibles is your word. We pray that we will live according to it. For asking Jesus' name, amen.